Welcome to another episode of The Cultural Hall, a very exciting and special episode because it is the first ever book club episode. I am the host, Just Joni. I'm joined here with Richie T, who's here to keep me on track and I don't know that there'll be I don't know that there'll be much keeping you on track. I, I think you'll be just fine. Interject whatever Richieisms he has and very excited to have with us our first ever interview and spotlight book for the book club. The book is called A Generation Rising by Gerald N. London. He is here with us today. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm very excited. I'm geeking out just a little bit because I'm a book nerd and yeah. I've read a lot of your books. So, um, well, I think that's probably for a lot of people, right? I oh, mean, yeah. work in the glory and everyone goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, they've got it on the shelves. Right. So doing a little bit of research, I, uh, I found out that you've sold three and a half million copies of books. How does that make you feel? That sounds good. <laughs> I, that's Desiree Books figure, and I have to trust them because I, I don't pay much attention to that. Okay. Well, that's a very good, humble answer. Uh, so I'm going to tell you a few things that I know about you. You're going to tell me if they're correct. Okay. And then you're going to fill in the blanks so that we can learn things about you that we don't know. Okay. So born and raised in Utah. Right. Moved from, what was it, San Pete County? San Juan. I was born in San Pete County and okay. then moved to Salt Lake for a while and then really was raised in Murray. Whereabouts okay. in San Pete County? Fountain Green. Oh, do you know about Fountain Green? I do not. Fountain Green, there are two things that you know about Fountain Green. One, you don't want to be there when it rains because it smells. Am I right? Absolutely. Because it, it's turkey poop. Oh, oh. And two, oh. you don't want to speed through Fountain Green. Because you will get a ticket every single time. A major source of income. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will remember that next time in Fountain. I am in Fountain Green. You don't know where it is, do you? I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so you grew up in Murray area, uh, and then attended. I know you attended BYU. Yes. Got your bachelor's and master's and there. Master's. Okay. There was some military service in there. Where did that fall in? Right after high school, both my brothers had gone in for six months with the Army Reserves, and so it sounded good to me, and that's what I did as well. Okay, and that was for how long? Six months active duty. Okay. Where were you assigned? I did uh, my basic training at Fort Ord, Which California, is? Okay. Down by Carmel, and then I went to Augusta, Georgia. Oh, so stayed stateside. Yeah, electronics training. Hmm. Okay, cool. And then we have uh, went into CES, correct? Right. Which for people that don't know. The church educational system. So what did you teach in that system? I started out teaching seminary. I, uh, I Unexpectedly, I was one semester from graduating. I'd taken a class. And uh, on a Friday, I got a call saying, we have a teacher who's so sick she can't teach. This was in February. She can't teach anymore. Would you be interested in So you fast-tracked it. And I said, well, I was just checking, and I can graduate if I go summer term. And so they said, okay, you're hired. Well, way to go. That's what, it. what made you want to do church educational system? Because it, it's not the money. No. <laughs> Actually, I, uh, when I was in the mission, I decided I wanted to be a social worker. Got your degrees in sociology. Yeah. Okay. And uh, 
but I had some classes that just really had an impact on me personally, uh, uh, the way the teachers taught. And I thought, you know, if I could do this for a living, I'd be happy doing that. And so I took the class, and next thing I know, I was hired. Okay. So I know that you worked in CES for quite a while, met your wife in there somewhere. At actually a BYU. Okay. I, that doesn't ever happen, though, I've heard. Um, no, like, no. yours was the first time that that's ever, that's ever right. occurred at BYU. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then uh, other things that I know about you is that you served in as a 70 for the church. Yes. For five years? Six and a half. Six and a half years during the 2000s. Right. Called by President Hinckley? Uh-huh. What's that experience like? It was wonderful because... I'd been a stake president of BYU for seven months. So when I got the call from... And his, anything to get out of there, huh? No, yeah, I just thought, what did I do wrong? I'm going up to see the president of the church. But I figured seven months, I was, you know, it was just maybe a question or something. So then he proceeded to give us the call, and he was delightful. He, uh, he asked me if I exercised, and I said, yeah. I like walked. physical exercise? Yeah. I walked, and he says, I pump iron. <laughs> Up and down. And then he asked me uh, how my finances were, and I said, well, I'm retired from CES, so I have retirement there, and I write some books. And he said, that's good. We're not going to pay you. <laughs> and then he called me, and I was stunned. Yeah, what was, what was that reaction from your wife? About the same. Yeah. He uh, asked her what she thought, and... She uh, kind of gulped and said, President, we're ready to do whatever you ask us to do. And he said, that's the perfect answer. So what did that service entail? We stayed in Salt Lake for one year uh, for training. They just rotated us through all the departments. When you, talk, when you talk about departments, so that's like the welfare, the missionary? Missionary, okay. welfare, you know. And then we were called to be in the presidency of the Europe West area, which was headquartered in... Solely whole England. Okay. Had you been to England before? Uh, yeah, several times with CES. Uh, but we were there for three years. One year as second counselor, one as first counselor, and then I was area president for a year. Wow. Which was a great experience. Did you have kids at home during that time? No. Okay. Our kids were all gone by then. Ah, that, or, so, or as we like to call it, the best time ever yeah, when kids are... Exactly. <laughs> So, so sometime in there, there was a family. There were several books written. Uh, how many children do you have? Seven. Seven children. And how many... This is what I wanted to ask. The transition from... Because um, were books ever on the, on the horizon when you started your career? Were you thinking, no. I'd like to be a writer at any no. point? I never had a writing class. I always hate to say that because people say, oh, yeah, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, because on page 143, I can see where a writing class might have been. But uh, I love to teach. And uh, after a few years in seminary, I went down to California, Southern California. And while I was there, I got interested in prophecies on the second coming. Okay. Started collecting all these quotes and using it in firesides and education weeks. And people started saying, why don't you write that up so we have those quotes? And so one day I said, why not? 
Yeah, the difference between you and every other would-be writer is that you actually did it. Yeah. So yeah. commend you for that. So let me jump in. So your first book then was a collection of of quotes and things about prophecies. I kind of wrote together with Clue. It was called The Coming of the Lord. But yeah, that was in 1971. So you'll forgive my ignorance uh, because I thought everything was fiction that no. you had written. No, I've written, I don't know, seven or eight or nine doctrinal books. Okay. Yeah, you you actually have written in several different genres. Right. So I'm I'm curious to know. Well, we'll we'll get back to that. Um, I'm wondering what happened with the CES when the writing happened. Did you just continue through the CES program? Yeah. I always wrote uh, on the side as a full time employee of CES. Okay. So that was my quote hobby. So uh, so how does that work? Because seven kids and CES. I mean, you're not sitting around going, boy, you know, I wish I had, <laughs> I wish I had less time with, you yeah. know, it's busy. Actually, uh, when the fellow uh, that I worked with on the uh, work in the glory approached me on the project, I told him I'd already started another one. And uh, he really gently pressured me to give it serious consideration. And so I did and finally decided, okay, I'll go for it. Four days after I committed to him, I was called as a bishop. Oh. <laughs> I remember looking up and thinking, okay, what? Is this really what's supposed to happen? But, but it was. But, uh, you know, a lot of people often ask me, where do you ever find time to write? And I finally came up with the perfect answer for me. You don't find time, you make time. And, cool. Uh, so when when did you make the time? Before everyone was awake? At night? After everyone had no, gone to bed? No, mostly at night uh, when our kids were still there. I, in fact, I had to be careful because I loved to write so much that if I, I'd start writing at like 9 or so, I'd write till 11. But if it was going good, I would have written all night. And I'd just finally say, hey, you got to work in the morning, so stop and go to bed. <laughs> so we're... Were you, what happened to the writing during your time as a general authority? Did you have to put that on hold or did you keep going? I did. I was, uh, you know, the other series I wrote on the New Testament was called The Kingdom and the Crown. Oh, yes, I've read it. And I had uh, <laughs> the first two volumes done and halfway through the second one when I was called. And I knew that. Uh, it wasn't standard protocol to have general authorities writing fiction. Uh-huh. So the senior president of the 70 at that time was Earl Tingey, and so I went to him and said, Brother Tingey, I have a dilemma. I'm, I'm halfway through this book. Desert Books already got it planned for their catalog. What do I do? And he said, that's not my decision. I'll take it the first presidency. And he came back a day later and said, they... Said, go ahead and finish this one, but then if you just put aside your writing until you're released. So there are fiction. There are three in that series. Is there a big gap between the second and the third? Then no, I went ahead and finished it. Oh, I see. Okay. And because uh, I remember reading it, and I don't remember there being a big no, gap. No, it was. Yeah. I finished it before actually. So the other thing that I wonder uh, uh, about all that is. So then the assignment in the second quorum of the 70, then do you know that that's a, a temporary 
calling in time. Right, right. They do tell you that, that it's yeah. just for a certain amount of time? Back uh, under President Hinckley, uh, the first quorum of the 70 was typically until they were age 70. Okay. The second quorum was uh, supposedly for five years. But <laughs> when I started talking to the other 70, President Hinckley said... Uh, your time of service will be until we feel it's time to release you. Others said, I was called for five years. Another one said, oh, he said five to seven. Now, President Monson is much more. It's 70 if you're first quorum. It's five years if you're second quorum. See, and I guess I didn't really know that. For some reason, I thought... Most people don't. They, you just kind of were like, well, it's, it's a good chunk of time, and uh, now he's doing something else. Emeritus and... You know. yeah, it's a distinguishing fact that very few members of the church realize. And uh, second quorum does not go emeritus. We're released. That's oh, really? Authority, yeah. So it's just okay. the... Look at what we're learning. So just the first quorum becomes emeritus, and then everybody else is just released. Right. And there's like 70 quorums of 70 now, right? Uh, no, we got still... <laughs> they're still at about uh, eight or nine, I think. But they're filling them up. Well, because the church is now so yeah. global and, and exactly. everybody, you know, pitching in their hand and having their specialty and, and things like that. But five years, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of all the bullet points for your life. But I want to know what it is about you that people don't know. We know that you teach and we know that you write. But I want to know what else it is that you fill your time with. Well, actually, those are really linked together. Mm -hmm. I write because I love to teach. And writing is a really sneaky way to get a very big classroom. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I was duped. Three and a half million students in the class. Yeah. I want, I, I want to ask this, this about that, though, because this is where sometimes things get a little cloudy for me. Sorry, Joni. Okay, you you knew it. I would interject. Like, work in the glory, for example, it's it's fiction based in history. And, and, and I think sometimes people get sort of confused. And I know that that's the case because I sat one time where someone was bearing their testimony about the family that, that happens in the work in the Gloria. And I, and I, and I didn't say anything, but I was like, that, that isn't re that's, that's an example of what could have happened, but you know, they're, yeah, that's one of the uncomfortable parts of writing fictional history. But do you I'm, get that there are a lot of, do you get reactions of people who think that it is historical, completely historical? Not so much. I get a lot of jokes about it. Uh, missionaries in Nauvoo tell me all the time that people say, where does the Steeds live? <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> but uh, an interesting thing happened after I'd written volume one, I was writing volume two. This is of the work in the glory? The work in the glory. And in volume two, After Joseph Smith goes to Kirtland, his mother brings a whole group of saints on the Erie Canal and then at Buffalo Harbor and so on. And in Buffalo Harbor, it's the middle of the winter and a storm comes up and just pushes a whole big, huge ice barricade across the harbor. And uh, she goes out and prays to the Lord and the wind comes up and it opens up and and they go on. My wife, who was always my first reader, read that because I have her, you know, going on the boat and how she talks with the captain and everything. She said, okay, how much of that is true and how much of that is you? And I said, 
in this case, most of it is Mother Smith. And so I got it out and read it to her. And she said, I want to know that. I want to know that that's not just you. Hmm. And so that's when we started footnotes. Right. Or endnotes, actually. And so we just, at the end of the chapter, say, this is it. And sometimes I say, because in most historical accounts, there's not enough to sustain what a novelist needs, you know, day-to-day conversation, descriptions, and so on. But uh, the commitment I made was, I'm going to be as true to that history as possible. That's fascinating. And I think it... What I love about it is that it reaches an audience that wouldn't ordinarily be reached because I don't know that a lot of people would sit down and be like, oh, hey, I'm going to read a nonfiction book yeah. about Emma Smith coming to Kirtland. Yeah, the seven or, volumes of Joseph Smith's history. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most <laughs> yeah. don't. The church has it there, and it's not a bestseller, but the work yeah. and the glory shares and teaches those things, and, and it is. And I have to say that when I read um, the Kingdom and the Crown series— I so th- that was about a decade ago. I was a young mom and I spent a lot of time reading. And f- for me, uh, the scriptures were my pretty much my only source for getting to know Christ right. as That's as right. for most people. And um I'm curious and we may be jumping into uh, other waters here, but um I'm curious what that experience was like for you because that series is is during the time of Christ from the perspective of people who were living with Christ right. in his towns and and the opportunity to hear him teach and um i f- i found it very impressive the way you delicately used Jesus's words from the scriptures, but added a depth to his character by the reaction, by using the reaction of right. the people around him. So w- were you nervous at all about? Yeah, especially I didn't want to put words into the mouth of Jesus that we didn't, you know, other than day to day stuff. But I'd written four novels before the work in the glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of which were just fictional stories. Um, but when I decided to do the work in the glory and decided I want to make it true to history, another driving force for me was I want people to feel what it was like to actually have lived during those times. What would it have liked to have been living in Palmyra and hear this young kid down the road come up with his absolutely crazy story? And, uh, and how did people react to that? And so if you look at the Steed family, you got the doubter, you got the rebel, you got the faithful believer, you got the one who's struggling to know. And, and uh, so that's kind of what drives me is same with the kingdom and the crown. So what would it have been like to be in Galilee when Jesus starts teaching and you hear it? And I think that it was really effective for me, for effective for me in particular, because um, it added a, a realness to that time period. Um, you know, you, they spoke in language that was much easier for me to understand than the scriptures would be, and I was found myself much more emotional as they experienced the 
the milestones in Christ's life than I feel when I read the scriptures. Right. right. I was feeling it through them. It made it a lot. Yeah. I'll give you a good example of that. I've had numerous people tell me that in their mind they never got church history straight when you had a headquarters in Kirtland and a headquarters in Independence, Missouri. Mm -hmm. They said, I just never got that straight. But when I live it through the eyes of the steeds, because that's how it happened, now, oh, now I see how it worked, you know. Okay. Uh, we got to take a break for a second. Yep. We'll come back in the second block, uh, continue to talk to uh, author, uh, f- f- uh, not emeritus, not emeritus, uh, released uh, elder of the uh, second quorum of the 70, Elder Gerald N. Lund, coming back in the second and third block. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. Windows 10 is out. You might even see a notification on your computer to get a free upgrade. Hold on a second. Remember when millions of people upgraded from older versions of Windows and had massive pain losing precious data or simply weren't able to run the current versions of software they already own? Don't risk it. If you've installed the upgrade already or simply need help, be safe and bring your desktop or laptop PC, no matter what brand it is, into any PC laptop's location for a 100% free evaluation so you have nothing to lose. Why are we doing this for free? Because we want to impress you so much that one day you might come back and buy a computer from us. Please visit us at any one of our eight locations right now or call us at one 596 S-A-V-E, or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, we really love you. Welcome back to the second. <laughs> I'm so it. used to you I know. bringing us you're, back No, in. you're doing okay. great. It's the okay. second block of the, the Cultural Hall. The second block of the Cultural Hall, where we are speaking with Gerald N. Lund, who has written A Generation Rising. But what I want to talk about right now is the books that precede that. So clearly the work in the glory is probably what you're best known for. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I remember reading, uh, spending the entire summer between my sophomore and junior year, just plowing through the work in the glory and um, my mother coming in. I'm, I'm sitting with my legs across the side of the chair and she's like, what is wrong? I'm bawling, bawling. It's fine. Nathan Steed, okay? Just leave me alone. She's like, we're going to introduce you to some people who live uh, and are outside of your room right now. Right. I know these books are great, but maybe... Luckily, she had already read the books, too, so she, right. she also knew that. Um, but I read a book, and I read it after. I, it's been about five years since I read it. Um, the Alliance. Right. That was one of your first, correct? It was my second novel. What was your first? It was called One in Nine Hand. One in Nine Hand? Yeah, it was a returned missionary who was frustrated with life and decides to go to Israel and falls in love with a Jewish girl. And <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So have you read that one? I haven't read that Come one. Come on, Joni. I know. <laughs> Too little time. So The Alliance, I thought, was really interesting because it was not what I had come to expect from you. It had some science fiction type. Right. Um, well, I, I don't know. Would you call it not dystopian, like a dystopian yeah, type of... A, that's a word that wasn't existing back when I wrote that. But right. But it is more you ahead of your science time. fiction. Right. So um, you've written several different genres. Is there mm-hmm. a place that you... So with your historical fiction, there's clearly a lot of research that goes into it. Huge. Uh, 
I'm wondering, do you do you decide on a time period and then just plow through a ton of historical facts and then later incorporate those in, or do you just... In the, in the historical side of fiction, um, I do a lot of research because I find stuff, and that, that drives my plot. Right. Not only what's happening historically, but the little side stories of the everyday people. Well, they often pe- people will often say the greatest. Not well, I can't think of the phrase, but you wanted to hear something just out absolutely outrageous. It's the truth, not a yeah. lie. Yeah, Tom That's Clancy said once uh, was asked, I think by Stephen, uh, not Stephen King, but uh, ask him. So, what's the difference between writing truth and you know fiction, nonfiction, and fiction? He said, "Well, the real challenge is fiction has to be believable." <laughs> Truth doesn't. So um, you've written historical. You've written nonfiction, which are are all your nonfiction gospel t- gospel based. Not in the sense of church based. I wrote. What do you mean? Well, before I started this current Fire and Steel series, I did two books called The Guardian. Okay. Guardian one and two. Explain what that's about. Uh, when I was a young father, I grew up, my parents always read to us every night. And uh, so we started that. And after a while, you've done about all the good stuff. And You can only hop on pop so many yeah, times. Exactly. <laughs> so I started one night, I just got it in my head, and I started making up this story and telling my kids. I, I was intrigued. I saw some girl named Carruthers, and I thought that was so strange. And so I started with that base, and I just started making this up, and we went several months, and then it just kind of died away. But over the years, my kids, who are now married, said, Dad, why don't you, why don't you go back and finish that story? And I uh, just finished uh, three doctrinal books, uh, which were it's a little heavier writing. And I just uh, said to Desiree Book, who... We're not thrilled with this, by the way, not to mention any names, but (laughs) they were hoping I'd jump right back to historical fiction. But I just said, you know, I just need a break. And this was just pure plot story and character. Yeah. And it was fun. So it's uh, the lead character is a young girl, 16. It's a mild fantasy set in the real world, but some mild fantasy to it. And... uh, are there LDS themes in that one uh, as well? She lives in Hanksville, but no mention is made of the church. And uh, they go to church, but never nothing in there that would, you would say, oh, that's LDS. Okay. Uh, okay, I kind of already talked about the... I, I want to know what you feel is your home base like what do you like to write the most would you prefer to write fiction nonfiction, or you're happy that you get to write both i'm happy with both i really enjoy going back and forth actually how about with the 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 work in the glory being made into movies that's such a whole different kind of thing was that something that you were approached with and went no thank you or yeah let's explore that or what was that whole experience well, like uh good question richie I had been approached at least a dozen times, maybe 20, by people saying, would you ever give us the rights to the work and the glory because we want to make a movie. Mm -hmm. 
But I've found that in the movie business, there's more wannabes than actual bees. Right. And, uh, <laughs> so I was always, tell me about yourself. Well, this will be my first movie. How yeah. are you going to fund it? Well, I haven't got to that part yet. <laughs> but uh, shortly after I was called to the 70, about three months, I'd been talking about doing this myself, forming a media company and doing something. And then I got called, and about three months later, uh, two men approached me, Scott Swafford, who I knew about but didn't know mm -hmm. personally. Uh, he made his name. He's most of the big uh, IMAX movies back then he produced. So he's good. And Russell Holt, who worked for the church, he and I had worked on, uh, I wrote the screenplay for The Lamb of God. And he was the producer director. Which any missionary who served stateside yeah. has mo has That's memorized exactly. because of how many times you watched it with yeah. investigators. Exactly. So when they came and said we're interested in uh, making the mark and the glory in the movie, I said, okay, you got my attention. Um, Scott had some connection with Larry Miller, and his pr point, his purpose, and proposal was to approach Larry and see if he'd be interested. Uh, Larry had already made contact with me because he was reading the work in the glory and if, if you know much about Larry, he was very much into the arts and supporting the arts. And, and for Larry Miller, for people who outside of listening, who are outside of Utah who are listening and maybe don't know, he was the owner of the Jazz, owns a bunch of car dealerships, yeah. a, a motor sports park here in very Utah. prominent person in Utah. Uh, and passed away about five, three, five years three ago? Years, May, yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. Just to fill so, people in. Uh, Larry called me one day and said, you ever want to go to lunch? And then, you know, I thought, wow, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and then he just wanted to talk about the work in glory. Some of the questions you're asking, how did you get started on this? What made you write it? And so through that, we became good friends. So when they approached him, he called and asked if I was on board with this. And I said, yes, but I'm going to call as a general authority my only role will be to make sure that the script is nothing that's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, he decided to bankroll it. And they, they held a press conference, and he said, I'm not in this for the money. I believe in the project. So is it is it common for the author of the books to actually write the screenplay? Was not that an option for you? Think. No. It's a different genre. I did a lot of studying on screenwriting because I wanted to write it, but uh, it's it's a special because in in a novel you have to describe what's happening for the reader. On the screen, all you have to do is write action because they they're seeing what you want them to see. A difficult process. In some ways, it's a, it's because it seems it seems to me like it'd be the difference of like. Uh, like uh, writing a book to doing an interview. Like, you know, you can have both of those skills, but they're just so entirely right. different. It, would, it, it seems like it would just be crazy. The, uh, the screenwriter has to think visually as well as plotting the same kind of things that a normal writer does. So does it, oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, so they do, they 
ask for the rights and then you just approve it and then they yeah, go fly? That was, that was one of the problems. I had, I had been approached on a couple of the other books and I found out very quickly that Hollywood calls a book a property. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do is once they pay you whatever they agree to pay you, that's it. And I would say, look, just because of who I am, I'm not interested in an R-rated movie. They said, hey, if we buy this property, that's none of your business. Right. And so I just backed off. And But these two, I had knew who they were and were confident in them. And did they did they let you be a part of the process and let you know how things were? Yes. Very, they were get very your good about that. In fact, after the first one came out, uh, Scott and... Uh, the cameraman and some of the others came over to England and uh, spent a week with us and talked through what the next two would be. <laughs> so do you think that there's a certain genre that's harder to write than another, or is it just that the process itself requires the same amount of effort? What's the difference between writing, uh, f- for example, historical fiction to nonfiction? Historical fiction takes a, a lot more research but doctrinal takes a lot more study so both are plenty of effort put into the studying that's one of the reasons i love the guardian so much it was it was just for me it was just fun writing is that the only one that you would say didn't require that kind of level of research first four novels were kind of that same way okay what about, it's just what I call entertaining fiction. What about like a children's book? I would think that somewhere along the line you would just want to do something where you're just like, you know what, <laughs> this is easy. And, you know, this weekend I went up to Heber Valley and I wrote a book and it's called Charlie Goes to the Salt Lake Temple. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, have you ever, have you ever had I, that? I've entertained that thought, but in talking to some who did it, do it I've found that writing a ch- children's book that sells is a very unique talent. Well, then I challenge you, Elder Lund. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone can do talent, it. I'm not interested in doing, Richard. <laughs> Appreciate the challenge. No thank you. That's no. what I just heard there. I don't know. Um, where are we at it on time? Uh, we can take a break and come back in the third block. Uh, there was one other question that I had as you were talking about the whole. So, so you you sell the the rights, the property to the to the folks, and they make the film. Right. Um, did you watch the film? Yeah. What did you think? Actually, uh, the brethren approved me and my wife coming home from England for the premiere. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's awesome. That really was nice. And, uh, well, it's uh, the same kind of goes back to Joni's question, you know, what's the difference in writing them? So I'm thinking if I'd have done that, I'd have done this a little differently. Mm -hmm. But overall, I was very pleased. Uh, I thought their casting was excellent. Uh, Joseph Smith was not a Mormon, not a member. In that film, that's right. And the thing that got him the role, this is what Scott told me later, is they asked him to read the part about him telling the first vision. Hmm. And uh, he did it with such feeling, put himself into that Joseph Smith role, that that, they said, okay, that's the one. Did it feel kind of like having a baby and then letting somebody else raise it a little bit? Yeah. And, but in other ways, you see it on the screen, the visual, and, and you think, wow, this is 
Yeah, I could. I did could did make you feel like it? And be happy to. It yeah. felt true to the vision that yeah. that you had for it. Yeah. True to the faith that our parents know. <laughs> Forget it. We're not going to start quoting him. True to the truth. Yeah. For which, uh, I, I always wonder that because uh, you hear these horror stories of the writers who put their heart and soul into something and then they sell it and then. You know, I would have hated for you to be at the to come home from your mission for that short time to see the premiere and just have you be in the theater going, "Come on, blonde! He's not blonde. He's he's got darker hair." And yeah. that's that was that was a harder guys. It's the work and the glory. You know, just <laughs> yeah, that's exactly part of the feelings that go through an author. I mean, you know, a book's your baby, and when somebody starts clothing it differently and throwing it out with the bath you get a little <laughs> upset I just uh, now in my mind I have the idea of you <laughs> coddling this book like a baby and just being like alright here's he really how you here's how you keep its head up here's yeah, that, how, that's what you really you, do you burp it mm-hmm. this way mm-hmm. yeah. uh, let's take a break for a second we'll come back and then I want to dive full on in uh, to the first book in this series the Fire and Steel series A Generation Rising um, because we got people who are going to be reading this book as part of the book club and and then participating with the event that we're having on the 8th of October out in Sandy, so people can come out and we'll discuss that and, and hear all about that. So uh, let's take a break and come back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Running a small business today can be difficult enough. Imagine all the work you have to do to market it. Imagine the hours you put in to create promotional materials for it. Now, imagine a partner that can help you with all of that and more. Imagine Lennon Design. Lennon Design is your partner in business when you need a professional look at a price you can afford. Whether it's websites, advertising media, promotional materials, and more, Lennon Design can help you promote your business. When you need creative, affordable designs, let it be. Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Third block of the Cultural Hall. Sorry, Joni. Okay. I wanted to ask him this question. We'll get it figured out. I'll, I'll turn, you it's know what? Good. These reins will become fledgling. yours. It's good. Uh, Elder Lund, serving uh, as a general authority for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is a fascinating calling to me. When I think of people like, uh, earlier you mentioned President Monson, so much of these these individuals' lives are dedicated to service to the Lord, which is amazing, is astounding. So much of the rest of their lives isn't known. Right. Right? Like, I mean, we know... know, a whole lot about their life until they became a general authority and then it becomes everything about the church and right. and, and I guess I, I wonder it, it's a little different with the quorums of the 70 because it is just that shortened time and then you come out and you can be like hey it was right. great and I did this and I served here and I talked about this um, but but I wonder about those gentlemen. I wonder what they do. You know, I know that President Monson loves lime rickies, but I only know that because I know someone who worked at a restaurant and exactly. said that's the prophet of the LDS Church, and he loves lime rickies. I I would love, and you're the you would be the one who they would let do it. A very personable side of all of these you know these great men stories about. 
you know, we were joking around in the temple and we were talking about missionary work in China and, and uh, you know, and Neil Anderson had a hilarious quip about personal side, particularly for the 12 and the first presidency. They're, um, what's a good way to describe it? They, they do not like to have the focus on them as a person. Mm-hmm. They want to focus on them and their calling. But uh, in the church office building, they're in the church administration building, which is where the top brethren are office, they have their own cafeteria. And one of the privileges was that we got to eat there. And they do that because you can imagine what would happen if a member of the 12 or the first presidency goes over in the main cafeteria mm-hmm. and never get out. Yeah. But the protocol there was if you came in and there was a member of the 12 sitting alone or two members of the 12, you never interrupted them without an invitation. But very often that, you know, say you're eating with somebody, but if you went and sat at the table, you could end up with anybody. You could end up with other 70s or a member of the 12 or even a member of the First Presidency just come and sit down and have lunch. Was there a cool apostles table like you see in movies? How there's always the cool kids table where no. it's like, hey, we can't sit over there. That's no. the, I'm teasing, of only, course. Only if they were, you know, if you had a couple of the 12 talking with each other, you don't go in and interrupt that. But I remember one day I was there. I can't remember them all. There was uh, Elder Christofferson, Elder Cook. Um, anyway, there were six of us. I was the only non-attorney at the table. Hmm. And it wasn't anything about law, but we were just talking back and forth. And as we got up to leave, Elder Christofferson looked around and said, who are we billing for this lunch? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a great, you know, you just get that insight. They're, they're yeah. great people. And that was the best part of the calling is to rub shoulders with us. And, and, I, and I love that. I love stories like that. And and I understand wholeheartedly the, the idea of, hey, you know what? We're serving the Lord and it's not about us. But, but something for me, I know that I'm not ever going to hear just casual things from Elder Christofferson, a general conference. It's always going to be right. a prepared and led by the spirit kind of exactly. thing. And and so I sort of miss that. Like, I want to know that he, yeah. who's who's paying for this meal and, uh, you know, what the nickname for his wife is or something like that. Just those those kind of personable details that I guess in some in some way I almost I almost feel like depersonifies isn't a word but you know what I'm saying like remove yeah. some yeah some humanness to it for example Elder Packer President Packer had a really quick sense of humor really just delightful but most people never saw that because of his role and We've yeah. talked about that before in the cultural hall when it comes to the way that church leaders are uh portrayed on their social media right they're on twitter they're on facebook but again they're presenting the gospel through themselves as you said um and we talked about how once i someone had snapped a photo of president monson at a casual event and he was wearing like a polo shirt and and it took me off guard because I had forgotten yeah. for a minute that he was a real guy who could go to a sporting event or, sporting or events, yeah. you know, something like that. And, and how 
I personally was saying that I wish that sometimes on their on their Twitter accounts or on their Facebook account, um, there could be some of those little anecdotal things that kind of get let you get to know them a little yeah. bit more. Like I'd love to I'd love to see Elder Cook, for example, with a picture of traffic that's like traffic. Am I right? <laughs> you know, and just be like, oh, okay, he he exists in traffic as I do. I'll tell you the story. I won't give you the name because. I don't know if he had approved approved of it, (laughs) not that it's inappropriate, but one of the 12 said that he had worked late and uh, came out, and it was just a driving rainstorm. And as he got on the freeway and headed south on I-15, he'd only gone a short distance, and here he saw a car off to the side of the road with an older woman and a young woman, like in her 20s, with the trunk up, and they were just standing there looking very, very confused. Mm-hmm. So he pulled over and uh, and got out, and he said, the minute I pulled over, I could see the older woman just stiffen, you know. She was very <laughs> nervous. So he got out and said, can I help you? No, 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 we're fine. Uh, looks like you need some help. Can I help you change the tire? No, no, we're fine. And he said... I looked at her and said, do you happen to be LDS? And she said, yes. He said, would it help if I told you I'm a member of the Quorum of the Twelve? <laughs> and she looked at him really close. She said, you are not. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, I finally just got back in my car and drove away. Oh, my gosh. But he said, I always wondered the next time I spoke in conference if she... <laughs> Hey, hey, wait a minute. Really nice. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of so. speaking in conference, you've done that. Yep, twice. And uh, what what is that experience like? Well, you realize you can foul up at a level never before possible. <laughs> <laughs> you um, you don't have to use the teleprompter, but oh, you, really? Yeah, you could choose not to and just read it. Oh, I thought the only reason you couldn't use the teleprompter is like Elder Hate, who was well, so blind he had to have the huge print r- like right in front yeah, of him. That's, and they used to let some little Grand Richards be spontaneous, but mm-hmm. you're expected to either read, but 98% use the teleprompter. And uh, But it's pretty sobering to think where that signal's going and... How many people are listening to you? You'll forgive me, but what did you speak about the two times that you... I know one of them was about opening your heart to the Spirit. Yeah. Do we have time for an interesting... Yes, always. The first... I was called Friday morning by President Hinckley. I was sustained Saturday afternoon, and they told me that I would probably speak in October. I I was called at the same time as one one of the brethren. And so at lunch, they provide us lunches, and so my family was all there, and so we went off over on the temple grounds and were having lunch together. So I walked back in at about 25 to 2, and here comes the secretary of the First Presidency on the dead run. (laughs) Brother Lund, where in the world have you been? Why don't you answer your cell phone? And I said, nobody's given me a cell phone yet. (laughs) Well, Elder Haight is sick, and so President or Elder Holland this morning covered for him. We now have a slot. You two are speaking. You got. Oh, oh my, my gosh. goodness. 
That was at 20 minutes too. And was that that talk, the, the spirit? That was the one. Because I have to say that that has, that's one that I remember. It was cool because I'm like, that's the guy that writes books, you know. So. Yeah. Well, I don't but it was really, was it, how did you prepare, prepare excuse well, me, prepare? Well, it's been a topic I'd thought about. And I'd, for some reason, just recently, I'd been thinking about the role of the heart. For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we but go. Down, down play I don't inspiration. I not remember much of what the other speaker said up until that point I got up. Oh, my gosh. But no notes. Either one of us didn't have any notes and no teleprompter. It was You were just speaking from memory as you spoke that? Yeah. Okay. I Wow. I'm really impressed now. <laughs> I didn't know any of that. <laughs> that that's amazing. I don't know that I could do that. I, don't I feel think like I I'm could. pretty good about doing no. stuff spontaneous, but to have something like that, certainly one of those blessings that you talk about where the spirit right. strengthened. Yeah. I definitely felt that. Yeah. Okay, so let's get talking about A Generation Rising. That's our book for our book club this month. This is the first in the series. I was just going to say, make sure that we don't do any spoilers here. No, of course. No. Because people are hearing this and going, oh, sure. I'm going to read this book. Sure, I love but they want to know why they want to read this okay. book. Okay, so it's, the, it's volume one of the Fire and Steel series. Right, this is a new series. And volume two is about to come out. Correct. Yep. November second. November second. The date. And the title of that is the storm descends. The storm descends. So to whet your appetite for that, you've got to read the first book, which I have read, and uh, it's about. It takes place in World War One, and I find that I have read many, many books about World War Two, and clearly it is a, a you know, a monumental time. It, for so many reasons, I think that people skip over World War One a little bit. So, uh, first, tell me how how big a stretch because you're known for having very epic storylines that last generations. How how much can we expect from this series? Well, the lead character in this book is was born in 1896. Okay, and was old enough to join. The army when World War One broke out, the German army, because so they're, the, they're a German family. German family. And uh, I plan to take that family all the way up through the end of World War Two. Okay, so when you decided that you wanted to write this book, why did you decide to go back so far? Well, as I thought about it. Let me back up. One of the things that's fascinated me ever since I was a teenager is what I call the individual in crisis. Um, so I've always read read a lot of World War II books. I've read a lot of people in natural disasters, uh, people under tyranny, and so on. That fascinates me how the individual responds. And... Knowing the period from, let's say, 1900 to 1947 is one of the most turbulent periods in history. I mean, you have World War One, you have the rise of Nazism, you have the Great Depression, you have World War Two, you have the Roaring Twenties, you just technology explosion. And uh, I wanted to write about that. I was particularly fascinated from the reading I'd done by what war 
means for the civilian, particularly when it comes into their country. So when you were doing your research, did do you just start out by immersing yourself in as much, you're like, World yeah. War One? I'm going to read everything I know about World War One. Well, it's not so much everything. I, I started looking for books, and then I see one. I think, okay, that's that's good. That's what I'm looking for. So you for. have core references yeah. that you mm-hmm. use. And I find, that's a good word, I, f- I find core sources that I use more heavily than others, even though I use a lot. So I thought it was really interesting. Uh, so it's it's a very character-driven book. Right. You know, it, I think sometimes when people hear historical fiction, they focus on the historical and lose a little bit of the fiction. This is really strong character-driven fiction. Yeah. And... Um, but I found it really interesting and helpful to me, who's taken history classes, and I find history classes to be so overwhelming because there's just so many people and places and times that I can't keep them straight. Right. So not only does this book really begin as far as the, the character narrative, like you said, in what was it, 1896, yep. but we get... A history in the beginning of how Germany got to where it was at that point politically. So what made you decide to give us that information instead of just diving into the story? Well, um, thinking long range for the whole series. One of the other intriguing questions I want, have always been fascinated with is when you take the German culture, which was one of the highest cultures in Europe, you know, the arts, the sciences, I mean, you think of the contribution of German intellectuals, and it's profound. So how does a country like that produce an Adolf Hitler? Mm-hmm. How does he come to power? And uh, you don't have to read very far to see that it's, uh, it's in the roots of, partly in the roots of German culture, partly in the roots of German history, but much in the things that were happening at those times, the decisions that were made, the, uh, the confidence of the Prussian uh, state that basically, as somebody once described it, was not a state with an army, it was an army with a state. Hmm. Prussia being that area of Germany at the... It, at yeah, the, it's around it's, Berlin. Right. And uh, very militaristic. Uh, and, and then the second question that drove me was, so if I remember the church living in Germany when Nazi comes to, when the Nazis come to power, what would that be like? I mean... And uh, as soon as I started doing that research, I found all kinds of fascinating stuff. I, I went into it thinking, were there members of the church in Germany at that time? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I noticed that you did. Um, you included some missionaries, yeah. and and in the end notes that you used experiences from real missionaries at that time exactly and uh found it interesting that this is not necessarily a spoiler just an interesting tidbit that is included in the book that it was considered kind of a rite of passage to be put in jail during your during your 
mission in Germany at that yeah. time. It was almost, you hadn't become a real missionary until you'd spent some time in jail. Oh, that's what it is in the Cleveland, Ohio mission, actually, <laughs> as well. <laughs> if you're going to call yourself a real Cleveland, and, Ohio and missionary. And why was that? Like, what, what was the political uh, reasoning behind throwing missionaries in jail? Uh, there was, it was uh, really varied from state to state in Germany, but uh, still a lot of... Uh, <clears throat> flow over from the poor negative publicity on, you know, the the plural marriage in Utah, the smoot hearings were going on in the early 1900s, and so there was a lot of bad press, but just like it was in the United States, a lot of it was religious-driven. Missionaries come in, start making converts, and the pastors go after them by going to the magistrates and saying, let's Let's shut this down. An interesting interview that we had had previously here in the Cultural Hall, David Conley Nelson, who wrote the book Moroni and the Swastika, mm-hmm. talks all about uh, that. Right. Just to give kind of a point of reference for some people. Sure. Yeah. So as I said earlier, as as someone who likes to consume literature, I have read many fiction and nonfiction books based around World War II. And, and the reasons for that are obvious because it caused a devastation worldwide that was unprecedented. But I was really shocked by some of the things that I learned about World War One in this book. And um and especially loved the way that they became real to me because I was reading it through the characters' eyes. Uh I was wondering if maybe you would tell everyone just really briefly what the Battle of Verdun was. Is that my saying that correctly? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um because I found that to be uh something yeah. I'd never even heard of before and is really amazing. You know, in in the US we don't talk nearly as much about World War One as we do World mm-hmm. War Two. They didn't call it World War One back then, they called it the Great War. But basically, you got the Allies and the, and the other side, the Germans, the Russians, and so on. And they didn't go at it like we think of World War II, you know, driving across countries and so on. They just basically got entrenched, literally entrenched, hundreds and hundreds of miles of trenches, and then they just lobbed poison gas and shells and, Jeez. I mean, trench foot and... So the Battle of Verdun lasted how long? It was uh, almost a full year. Of one single battle? Yeah. And people just were, like, in the trenches? Yeah. Sometimes they'd send the tanks in, and they'd push them back, and then they'd get them up and run them off and and then come back to the trenches. And it was just a horrible, horrible warfare. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you detail a bit of that. In A Generation Rising? Yeah. Correct. The lead character joins the army and gets involved in the Battle of Verdun. Okay, so our, the next book in this series is called The Storm Descends. Are we, can we expect the same uh, characters in that book? Yep. That book begins as World War I ends, and the lead character now goes back to facing life. And this was a surprise to me, and it partly answers the question, how did Ger- uh, Germany ever come up with uh, Adolf Hitler? The turmoil that followed World War I, uh, which was driven heavily by the October Revolution in Russia, socialism, 
you cannot believe the chaos politically that erupted after World War One. I. I mean, so state if you, after state ended up with socialistic governments. They would turn the criminals loose because they say we're all brothers and just turn them loose on the street. Mm. They, uh, in one case, they hired a, a person with no education at all, was barely literate, made him the minister of education and religion. Oh, my gosh. In their state. I mean, it was just it's like the Cultural Revolution in China. Just crazy. And you can learn all about those kinds of historical facts, not only through the text in A Generation Rising, but there's also endnotes that are really helpful to let you know what is historical and what is fictional. Right. And I was surprised to see how much actually was historical. So pick up this book. At, uh, you can pick, her up, pick it up at Deseret Book. It's called A Generation Rising, Fire and Steel. And then you're going to want to pick up the next book, A Storm Descends, on November 2nd at Deseret Book. Uh, there are three questions that we always ask everyone that comes into the cultural hall, and I get to ask them this time. Uh, first of all, do you have a calling, and what is it? I am, uh, at the moment, I am the ward executive secretary in our ward. Awesome. Okay, so everyone's like, i got to call up Elder Lund <laughs> to make an appointment with my bishop. It was, a great, <laughs> it was a great way to get to know the ward. Okay, cool. If you could pick any calling for yourself, real or fictional, one that doesn't exist or does, what would you choose? That's the second calling I have. <laughs> we created a, a council in our ward called Temporal and Spiritual Welfare. Okay. And we've got an outstanding woman that uh, does the temporal side, food storage and disaster preparation. But they said, you know, we're not doing much on the spiritual. Would you ever consider teaching a class? So I teach a class once a month. That's I a good to gig. I get choose the topics. I, it's an hour and a half. That's awesome. It's I a good gig if you don't have to also be executive secretary. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, I love to teach, so I really do. That, that's the favorite calling I've had. Okay. And what is your favorite part of your faith? Um... That's kind of evolved over the years, but I'd say right now is that more and more I sense just how incredibly personal Heavenly Father wants our relationship to be with Him. He knows us infinitely, and He loves us intimately. And that's, that's really changed my way of life, thinking of life. So Awesome. awesome. Again, we've been speaking with Gerald N. Lund, author of A Generation Rising, the beginning of the Fire and Steel series. And you can pick that up now at Deseret Book. And also you can pick up uh, the second book in the series on November 2nd. Join us in reading this first book and discussing it with us on October 8th at the Sandy Library, part of the Salt Lake County Library System. 100th South and 13th East, uh-huh. 6, 6 o'clock 6 start. 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, and make sure and email us. Let us know uh, that you're going to be coming so we know how many people to plan for. Right. Uh, Richie at theculturalhall.com or theculturalhall.com. There's a contact us page. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body. And that if you weren't healthy enough to listen to it this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen to it next week. And I never say this part, so I don't know. And that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. Until Uh, then. uh, In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you. On the back row of of the the Cultural Cultural Hall. Hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat. All 